All right, well, we're going to get into our teaching series. We are on part five today of an eight-part teaching series that we are calling Legacy, Our Place in His Story. And what we are trying to accomplish is we are trying to find where do we fit in the story of God. You see, when the Bible stopped being written, the story of God didn't stop. The story of God continues on, and we are all a part of it. But we believe that the best way to find our place in the story is to understand the legacy that has been handed down to us. That in the Bible, we have thousands of years of history, men and women who have followed God, who have struggled, who have made mistakes, who have learned things about God, who have experienced the glory of God and the judgment of God. And the more that we would read this legacy that's been handed down to us, the more that we would commit ourselves to reading the Bible, the more that we would find life in God, the more that we would grow spiritually, the more that we would find success in the things that God wants us to do in our lives. Our end goal of doing this teaching series is that we want everyone at Kauai Bible Church to be motivated to read their Bible every single day. That's the goal. You know, across the country, different, different research reflects different things, but the Southern Baptist Convention, they found that in the Southern Baptists, only 20% of their people are reading their Bible every day. And that's members of Southern Baptist churches all over the country. So the Southern Baptist Convention started a movement. They called it 80 by 20. And what they want is they want 80% of their members reading the Bible every day by 2020 and so they came up with the catchy name 80 by 20 I haven't come up with a catchy name but my heart's desire is that everyone at Kauai Bible Church would be reading their Bible every day and if that were to happen the spiritual growth would be off the charts the sins that have plagued us we would start to be set free from them the, 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 the areas of our character that have been deficient, we would begin to grow in those areas of our character. We would begin to make changes in our lives. We would begin to step into ministries that we had not been willing to step into. And revival will flow out of Kauai Bible Church. And that will happen from a people who are reading their Bible every day and growing in God every single day. So that's why we're doing this. We are surveying the Bible from cover to cover so that we can understand the big picture of God's story and we can be more motivated to read it every day. So on our next slide, you can see that we've taken the Bible and we've broken it up into eight different sections. And we're spending one Sunday on each section. So last Sunday, we were in the major prophets. We studied these four men of God, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel where they fit in the history of Israel and the things that they were speaking that were still declaring the word of God to us today. So if you missed that message or any of the other messages, go to our website. You can listen to it there. Go to our podcast. With the message, this particular slide is also attached to the audio messages. So if you wanted a permanent copy of this slide, that is on our website as well. So that means that today we are wrapping up the Old Testament by jumping into the Minor Prophets and looking at these 12 men of God. So I told you that every Sunday I was going to give you a new Bible fact, just so that we learn something new about the Bible every week. So here's Bible fact number five. Since we're wrapping up the Old Testament, I thought we would ask the question, how was the Old Testament compiled? How did we end up with the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament today? So to answer this question, 
I need to, to teach you guys a word. And that word is cannon. Now, not the weapons on a pirate ship, not that type of cannon, okay? This word cannon has less ends in it. And here is our definition of the word cannon. It is a body of rules, principles, or standards accepted as universally binding in a field of study. So what a canon is in any field of study is it's a set of rules that are accepted that this is what guides this field of study. So when it comes to the Bible, we have what's called a biblical canon or canon. What that means is a set of rules that determines what books are in the Bible and what books are not in the Bible. So today we're going to look at the Old Testament canon. I'm just going to give you three basic rules that helped guide what books ended up in the Old Testament. The first rule is this. The writings were accepted as authoritative and prophetic in the day they were written. That from the moment they were written, they were accepted by the Jewish people that this person was a prophet and these words are authoritative from God. So Moses was the first prophet. And so the five books that Moses wrote were immediately accepted as authoritative from God. Even while Moses was still alive, the books that he wrote were considered the law of God. And then after Moses came Joshua, and the words that he wrote were accepted as words from a prophet. And then you have Samuel, who some think that Samuel wrote Judges, Ruth, and the two books of Samuel, that those books were immediately accepted because Samuel was recognized as a prophet. Jehu wrote most of 1 Kings, and he was accepted as a prophet. All four of our major prophets, all 12 of our minor prophets, they were accepted in their day as a prophet. And the words they wrote from the day they wrote them were accepted as authoritative from God. So that was our first rule, and that's where we get most of the books of the Old Testament. And then we have the second rule, which is that these books were universally accepted among the Jews. So we have some books that didn't fit under the first rule. For example, Job. Job was written way before Moses. So there wasn't even a Jewish nation around to recognize Job as a prophet. But his book was universally accepted, and it became a part of the canon. Same with a book like Esther. There was a lot of debate over the book of Esther. Why? Because the name of God is never mentioned once in the entire book. And so there was debates. But at the end of the day, the book of Esther was universally accepted by the Jews as being authoritative. And then the third rule was the least amount of books possible that could tell the whole consistent story of God the least amount of books possible that could tell the whole consistent story of God. Josephus was a great Jewish historian who wrote in the first century AD. And he actually wrote in comparing the Hebrew Bible to the Greeks, he wrote that the Greeks have so many books. They have hundreds, thousands of books. They have so many philosophers and they all contradict each other. They've got all these different writings, all these different philosophies, and none of them agree with each other. And then he wrote, but we Hebrews have only 24 books. And those 24 books, as small amount as possible, tell the whole story of God over a period of 3,000 years. Now you say, wait a second, Pastor. You said there's 39 books in the Old Testament. But now you say the Hebrew Bible only had 24 books. It's the exact same content. The only difference is that the Hebrews combined a lot of the books together. So like all 12 of the minor prophets, they combined those into one book. 
The two books of Samuel, they combined those into one book. It's the exact same content. They just combined it into a smaller number of books. And so Josephus said it was the least amount of books possible that could tell the whole consistent story of God, that there was no contradiction in them. So it was Jewish tradition that the divine books were kept in the temple. Therefore, it's believed that Ezra, after he rebuilt the Jewish temple after captivity, that it was Ezra who gathered together the 39 books and put them in the temple. And that means sometime in the late 400s B.C., is when we had the canon of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Other scholars disagree with that. Other scholars say that it was closer to the 200s or 100s BC that we had the 39 books in the canon. But regardless of the dates, that is how we came about with the 39 books that are recognized as the Old Testament. So there you go. You learned something new about the Bible today. Let's check out these minor prophets. Remember, we learned last week the only difference between the major and minor prophets is that the major prophets wrote longer books, right? They, uh, their ministries lasted a longer period of time, which simply means they wrote more. The minor prophets had the same anointing. They heard from God just as clearly. They were held to the same standard. They just wrote shorter books, so we call them the minor prophets. There were 12 of them, and guess what? You're going to be amazed by this at this point in this teaching series. They're not in order, okay? So they couldn't even put these 12 in order for us. So what I've done since we have 12 of them is I've broken them into four categories, and we've got three of the minor prophets in each of these four categories. So the first category is the northern prophets. I told you last week that there weren't very many northern prophets. Elijah and Elisha were the two major prophets to the north, but they didn't write any books. Most of the prophets to the north were murdered rather quickly, but God didn't send very many prophets to the north for the very reason that the north was so far gone, right? The northern kingdom never followed God. Every single king was evil. Not a single one of them ever repented and turned back to God. So we don't have as many northern prophets, but we do have three of them, Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. They prophesied somewhere between 772 B.C. and 715 B.C. These northern prophets focused on the rising power of the Assyrian Empire, who eventually came in and destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. So, for example, Jonah, the book of Jonah, once he was done running... Because if you've heard the story, Jonah, when he was called to be a prophet, ran away, right? He didn't want to prophesy to Nineveh, so he got on a boat, sailed the opposite direction, got thrown off the boat, swallowed by a whale. The whale spit him out on dry land, and then he decided, okay, now I'll be a prophet. All right, so once Jonah was done running, he prophesied and called the city of Nineveh to repentance. Why is that significant? Because Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And God sent an Israelite prophet to the capital of the Assyrian Empire to call them to repentance. Amos was a lowly shepherd from the south, but God called him to declare judgment to the north in a time when the northern kingdom was thriving economically. So they were rich, they were wealthy, they were privileged, but they weren't following God. And they had no compassion and no justice, and so they were becoming rich by taking advantage of others. And so what does God do? Calls a lowly shepherd from the south to go to the north and declare judgment. And of course, they didn't listen to him. 
And then we have Hosea, who was a contemporary of Isaiah. His personal life became his prophetic message. And we're going to learn more about Hosea here in just a moment. But he prophesied that Israel would be destroyed by Assyria, but then Israel would be restored to its former glory. Those are our northern prophets. Then we have our early southern prophets. This is Joel, Obadiah, and Micah. They prophesied somewhere between 840 B.C. and 700 B.C. Joel and Obadiah were the earliest writings of all the minor prophets. They probably wrote back around 840 to 830 B.C. Whereas Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea, he was much later on. But Joel and Obadiah were writing at the same time that Elisha was doing crazy miracles up north. Joel prophesied about end time events. He was the earliest of the minor prophets to describe the terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the tribulation that would be coming. But Joel also predicted the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Then we have Obadiah. Obadiah prophesied against Edom, which was the nation just to the southeast of Judah and was obviously related to the Israelites, right? Because it was Jacob and Esau who became Israel and Edom, right? You following me? So Obadiah prophesied against Edom and gives us a picture of what happens if we stand against God's people. Micah grew up in a rural area, and so his heart was for the poor and the lonely. So most of Micah's prophecies focus on those in power abusing those who did not have power. Micah also predicts the thousand-year reign of Jesus and the world peace that will come during that thousand-year reign. Then we have our later southern prophets. This is Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. These guys prophesied between 633 B.C. and 598 B.C. Nahum prophesied right after Isaiah was murdered. So we talked last week that, that the evil king Manasseh sawed Isaiah in half. Right after that happened, Nahum took up the mantle and began prophesying in Isaiah's place. The other two, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, they were contemporaries of Jeremiah. So as Jeremiah was prophesying that Babylon was coming, Habakkuk and Zephaniah were right along the same time period as him. So Nahum, a hundred years after Jonah gave Nineveh a chance to repent, and they chose not to, and they destroyed the northern kingdom, Nahum declares the destruction of Nineveh and the fall of the Assyrian Empire. And what he predicted came true 50 years later. He predicted it. Habakkuk, his book is interesting. Habakkuk is actually arguing with God. He's saying these people are so sinful, and God, you're not doing anything. And God's response was, Babylon is coming. And if the people don't repent, Babylon will be here. Zephaniah pictures the fall of Judah to Babylon, but then he also prophesies of end time events, just like Joel speaks of the terrible day of the Lord, but also the blessing that is to follow for those that are faithful. And then finally, we have our post-exile prophets. These three guys prophesied after the 70 years of captivity when the Israelites began to come back to Jerusalem. And so this took place around 520 to 430 B.C. See, when we hear about the Israelites being set free from captivity, we just assume that they all rushed back to Jerusalem. But they didn't. In fact, most of them didn't come back. Only a small handful of them came back. And you say, well, why is that? Well, think about it. After 70 years of captivity... 
Most of them were born and raised in Babylon. It was the only home they knew. They didn't know Jerusalem. And so when Babylon fell and the Persians gave them permission to go back to Jerusalem, only some of them went back. And the ones that went back didn't have the word of God, didn't have the Bible, didn't have the temple, didn't have the worship. They didn't know how to worship because they'd been raised in Babylon. And so what we have then is Haggai and Zechariah were among the early group of Israelites that returned from captivity. So these were the prophets that helped to teach the people how to come back to the true worship of God. Then it wasn't until a good 70, eh, maybe 50 years later, that Ezra came back from Persia and rebuilt the temple. And then about 10 years after that, Nehemiah comes back from Persia and rebuilds the walls. And then once Ezra and Nehemiah have rebuilt Jerusalem, then we get Malachi who comes on the scene and prophesies after Ezra and Nehemiah. So what do we have? Well, we have Haggai encouraging the Israelites to put God back at the center of their lives to rebuild the temple and to restore the worship that Israel once had. Haggai was the one who was teaching them how to get back to being Jewish how to get back to being the people of God. Then Zechariah, of all the minor prophets, Zechariah contains the most prophecies about Jesus. Why is this important? Because as the people are coming back from captivity, Zechariah is the one that's reminding them, hey, God preserved Israel for a reason. And he's bringing you back to Israel for a reason. And that reason is that a savior is coming through Israel. And so Zechariah prophesied of the coming Jesus, reminding the people there is a reason we have come back to Jerusalem. And then finally Malachi, the last writer of the Old Testament, challenged the people to take responsibility for their actions if they wanted to see the blessing of God in their lives. And then after Malachi prophesied sometime in late 400 BC, the Old Testament is done and we go silent for 400 years. No scriptures, no prophetic words. I mean, there might have been prophetic words, but none that were accepted as canon for 400 years. And then after that 400 years of silence, this crazy prophet named John the Baptist comes wandering out of the wilderness and starts saying that he's preparing the way for the Messiah. So that's where we are. That is the minor prophets. What I would like to do today, just briefly, is just look at one of them. We don't have time to hear what all 12 of them are speaking to us today. So I just want to look at one, and that one is Hosea. So let's look today at our legacy from Hosea's family. What is Hosea speaking to us today? Let's go to Hosea chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Can we just pause right there for a second? Did the Bible really just compare loving raisin cakes to idolatry and worshiping false gods? Does that not stand out to anybody? Right? Like if loving cake is a sin, there's a whole bunch of us in here that we're in trouble, man. I mean, we are, we are in trouble. I mean, if loving raisin cakes is wrong... I don't know if I want to be right, right? I mean, come on. At this time in history, raisin cakes were considered to be an aphrodisiac, and so they were used in the temple orgies when the people were worshiping false gods. 
That's why it's bad to love raisin cakes. All right, I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay, back on track. Verse 2. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. I told you just a few minutes ago that Hosea's personal life became his prophetic message. So what would Hosea say to us today? The first thing I believe he would say is this, is that life is messy. Not only that, but the call of God upon your life is messy. God called Hosea to go find an adulterous woman and marry her. Now, sex before marriage has always been a sin. But the nation of Israel took it a little bit more seriously than, than we take it nowadays. And so for a woman to have had sex before marriage, nobody wanted to marry her. She was defiled. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of guys that would have sex with her, but nobody would marry her because she was spoiled. And yet God said, I want you to go find an adulteress, and I want you to marry her, and then I want you to have kids with her, and I'm going to tell you to give your kids some messed up names. We're going to talk about the messed up names of Hosea's kids here in just a minute. And then after having three kids, she's going to leave you, she's going to go back to her pimp, and she's going to become a sex slave again. Life is messy. And this is the part that jumps out to me, is that Hosea had a difficult marriage, and it was actually God's will for him to have a difficult marriage. Think about that. We just like our theology nowadays where we say things like, well, God always wants you to be happy. God just wants you to have nice things. You know, that's a theology that we made up in America in the 1980s, right? That's not in the Bible. That's just Western theology. God doesn't care about us being happy all the time. You know what God cares about? God cares about us fulfilling our destiny. And if to fulfill our destiny, we have to go through hardship and difficulty, God's okay with that. And you know what else God wants? He wants us to spend eternity with him. And for us to spend eternity with him means that we have to be broken in this life. God's okay with that. Life is going to be messy. And even when you're in the midst of the will of God, life will be messy. If God wants you to have a difficult marriage, that's okay. God says, still stand for your marriage. If God allows you to go through a season of depression and you can't find your way out of it, that's okay. God is fulfilling his purpose in your life through the difficulty. He is fulfilling his purpose through the mess. Hosea found God's purpose fulfilled through the mess of his life. Second thing he would say is this. Sin steals your identity. At the beginning of Hosea, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we hear about Hosea's wife. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So we hear about this woman. Her name is Gomer. 
Her dad's name is Deblaim. She is the wife of Hosea, and she becomes a mom. All of those things are a part of her identity, right? Well, then after her third child, she leaves her husband, goes to her pimp, and becomes a sex slave again. Then what happens in Hosea 2.2, it says, speaking to the children, it says, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, and let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. The harlotry upon her face was probably the makeup that prostitutes wore, and the adultery between her breasts was probably a specific piece of jewelry that only prostitutes wore. And the word says, if she would not turn away from these things, then contend with her. Don't consider her your mother, and I'm not going to consider her my wife. And then in Hosea 3.1 that we just read, it says, go again and love a woman. So she was Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, a wife and a mother. And when she chooses a life of sin, she loses her identity as a wife. She loses her identity as a mother. And now God won't even call her Gomer. He just says a woman. Sin steals your identity. The very person that you're supposed to be is stolen away when you compromise. And man, when sin comes, it's tempting, it's alluring. We want to give into it, and we think we can get away with it. And so we enter into it, and we indulge in the sin. But the more that we indulge, the more we lose who we're supposed to be. And the very things that God intended to define us are stripped away. And we become a shell of ourselves, and we're not who we're supposed to be. Life is messy. Sin steals your identity. But then Hosea says this, but God gives it back. Sin steals your identity, but God gives it back. God told Hosea, I want you to go buy your wife back from the pimp. So he does. Shekels of silver, a homer and a half of barley. He goes and he buys his wife back, which is a picture of Jesus buying us back that we have made ourselves the harlots by turning away from God and living in sin. And Jesus pays the price to buy us back. Now let's talk about these messed up names of his children. God told him to name his first child Jezreel. Jezreel was a location in Israel that was known for death and bloodshed. So he basically named his first child death and bloodshed. His second child was named Lo-Ruhama which meant no love or no compassion. So he named his second child, you are not loved. I will not show you compassion. And then his third child, God told him to name Loami, which means not my people. You are not mine. So his three children are named Bloodshed, I have no compassion for you, and you're not mine. Why? Again, because Hosea's life was a prophetic message to the people of Israel. But then listen to what happens in chapter 2 of Hosea. In verse 1, God says, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. God takes the low off the front of it. The low is the negative. The low is the part that means no. When you take the low off of it, all that's left is the positive. So he says, Say to your brothers, Ami, which means you are my people. And say to your sisters, Ruhama, which means we do have compassion for you. And then in verse 23, he says, I will sow her for myself. It's interesting that Jezreel 
Even though it represents a place of bloodshed, the actual Hebrew word means to sow. So what does God say? I will sow her for myself. And then he says, I will also have compassion on her. And then he says, I will also say to those who are not my people, you are my people. All three of the negative names, God reversed all three of them. This is God's picture of redemption. That where sin steals our identity and judgment is declared over our lives, God says, I am going to change your name. I am going to define who you are. And where the judgment says bloodshed, where the judgment says no compassion, where the judgment says you are not mine, God says, I am going to show you. That means your life is going to be fruitful. I am going to show you love and compassion. And you are mine. Sin steals our identity, but God gives it back. There's something in a name. God changes our name and changes our destiny when we come to him. And finally, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. The last thing Hosea would say today is intimacy happens when God changes from master to husband. See, in Hosea 2 and verse 16... It says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Bali. Ishi means husband and Bali means master. So God is saying, in that day, you will call me husband and you will no longer call me master. There will be a shift in our relationship, just like with, with Hosea and his wife Gomer in verse 3 of chapter 3 that we read at the beginning. He says, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. What he's saying is, is I bought you back. I'm going to bring you home. You're going to stop being a prostitute. You're going to stop sleeping with other men. But you know what? I'm not going to sleep with you either. We're just going to have a period. Call it a, a cleansing season where I'm going to bring you into my home, but I'm not going to sleep with you. But then when that season has come to an end, I'm going to come into you and we're going to reconsummate our covenant and we are going to be husband and wife again. And that that is a picture of God restoring covenant with us. Look what it says in verse 5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David their king is symbolic right here of Jesus Christ. It says when the people will return to seeking God and seeking their Savior, Jesus. And it says, and they will come trembling. When I think of Gomer going home with Hosea, I'm imagining that she was scared to death because according to Jewish law, Hosea had the right to execute her. And so for Gomer, as she's following Hosea home, she must be thinking to herself, he came all the way over here to buy me back just so he can take me home and kill me. She comes home trembling. But then when they get home and Hosea says, I'm not going to kill you. In fact, I'm going to restore our marriage. And nothing that you've done before is going to be held over you anymore. We're going to be husband and wife again. We're going to be intimate. I didn't bring you home so I could be your master. I brought you home so I could be your husband. And it says, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. 
There is a shift in our relationship with God when we shift from master to husband. You see, when we view God as our master, there's just a whole lot of religiosity tied up in that. I serve him out of duty. I do it because I'm supposed to. There's no joy in it. There's no relationship. He's my master. I do what I say so that he won't strike me down and kill me. There's a bunch of fear involved in it, right? I just do things because I'm afraid of God. But that's religiosity. Intimacy happens when God changes from master to husband. When God says, I didn't redeem you just to lord it over you so that you could just grovel and be broken all the time. I redeemed you so that we could be in covenant together. And I'm not going to hold any of your past against you. Nothing in your past is going to stop you from getting close to me. You're going to experience my goodness. And even when life is messy, you're going to know my joy. And even when things are difficult, you're going to experience peace. I didn't redeem you to be your master. I redeemed you to be your husband. There is an intimacy that takes place. Will you stand up with me today? I have walked the journey of difficulty. I understand the messiness of life. And I am okay with it because I know that I would not be the man that I am today fulfilling God's destiny for my life today if it wasn't for the messiness that I had to walk through. For the brokenness of the family that I was raised in. The terrible choices that I made. The turmoil that I caused. All of it is a part of who God has made me to be today. Life is messy, and that's okay. But in the midst of the messiness, we embrace who God has called us to be. And we stand for what God has called us to stand for. And I just believe right now, I just believe that God wants to peel back the religiosity. I believe that right now God wants to break the fear. That there are some here today that are here out of religious duty. There are some today that go through the motions on Sunday, but do whatever you want all week long. And God wants to roll back that religiosity and say, I'm not just your master on Sunday. I want to be intimate with you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I want you to walk with me every day. And I don't want you to be afraid of me. I want you to feel close to me. Will you bow your heads with me right now?